You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Age. And this morning we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one located in one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. You can take that and consider that a gift from, a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. It's great to see you all. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if it is your first time, I just want to say thanks. Uh, thanks for making us a part of your week. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, like Ty said, we kicked off our fall sermon series in the book of Jonah last week. Uh, and Jonah's a really familiar book with, for, for most of us. You probably have heard at least the story of Jonah, even if you haven't read through the four chapters of Jonah itself. You know, it's, it's a book about God engaging with a man that he calls to be his prophet. He sends him to go into a city that's a great, huge metropolis city of the time to go and uh, proclaim judgment against it, basically warn them. You know, it's got a lot of twists and turns in it. You know, it kind of starts off as, you know, your typical kind of prophet book, and then a fish swallows a guy. You know, it turns, it takes some turns, and it has some supernatural elements to it, but it has all the great elements of any great story Jonah does. This morning, what I want to do is focus, though, particularly on verse number three. Um, we're, we're, we're going to kind of slow down and speed up as we go through the whole book, but I really want to focus on just one verse this morning. Uh, and to recap for you, uh, Jonah has been called by God to go to Nineveh to call out against the evil that's taking place there to warn the inhabitants of God's impending judgment. And, and the story goes like this, Jonah does not obey. So he just kind of goes the opposite way. He doesn't respond to the voice of the Lord. He runs from his presence. And, and I really want to focus just on one major question, which is, what insight does Jonah's flight from God give us? What can we learn from it? What can we glean from it? What can we understand about God about ourselves as we, as we look at Jonah's flight away from the presence of God? So before we jump into that, though, I'd love to pray, ask the Spirit to speak to us. If you would, bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, we just want to begin by just thanking you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can come to the truth of your word. The stories that you've lined out here, and that we can rely on the fact that you will do supernatural things through your word. Because this story we know, God, was not just penned thousands of years ago by a witty author, but by the inspiration of your very Holy Spirit. And so now we ask, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you help us, my God? Give us the humility to hear from you. And may we leave out of here unburdened from our own self-salvation techniques, walking in the peace that you so graciously offer us, God. Help us to learn what obedience looks like and to walk in that way that brings us true joy. And we ask it all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me read verse 3 for us and then 
uh, kind of spend some time on it. So it says in verse 3, But Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down to it to go with them, them are mariners, to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So we get the city that he's going to three times from the author, and we get that he flees not from the calling of God, but from the presence of God, which is unique because it said the word of the Lord had come to Jonah and given him a calling. And it doesn't say that he runs away from his calling. It says he runs away from God's very presence. And so that's the first thing that we probably should take time and think about. What does it mean that he runs from God's presence? Well, again, I don't think that it just means he runs from God's calling. I think it means at least three things, most likely a lot more. But number one is when we run from the presence of God, we run from the purposes of God for our life. God has a purpose for Jonah. He runs away from God's presence and in so doing, running away from that very purpose. Number two When we run from the presence of God, we run from the people of God. So Jonah goes from being an Israelite in Israel to going to Joppa, trying to get to Tarshish, hanging out with sea mariners, you know, and and this happens in our own life, right? Typically, whenever we're walking in disobedience from the Lord, one of the first things we'll do is disconnect ourselves from people who might call us out on that, right? That's why marrying a Christian is a great idea because then you got to live with them, you know? They start calling you out on stuff and you can't just do away with them like you do your friends. And so they start telling you, you can't be disobeying God and... You know, it's tough, but it's, it's that tough love that you need to hear, right? But Jonah does that. And then, of course, running from the presence of God is also running from the peace of God. And so this is kind of uh, implicit, not explicit in the text. But what we see is that Jonah tries to get peace or to gain peace because he's got all this anxiety, pent-up anxiety about this calling. So he tries to gain peace by running from the presence of God. The problem is that we, you cannot get the peace of God without being in the presence of God. Or another way to put that would be, we don't get peace, um, at least the eternal peace that only God offers, apart from the author of peace, apart from the prince of peace. You have to be with him in order to experience this peace. And so the one word that's used three times in this one verse is a very mysterious city. This city is called Tarshish, which is very hard to say, and all of us have been mushmouth with it. But Tarshish is this city that we don't actually know exactly where it is. There's a lot of differing uh, opinions about this. There haven't been any archaeologists that have actually like unearthed the city itself, and so there's a lot of opinions. But we do know at least this about this city. Number one, we know what the name of the city means, which kind of gives you an indication of where it can't be. And then number two, we know that in all of the different places that people say Tarshish may have been at the time, It's directly the opposite direction of Nineveh, which is all we really need to know, right? God says go to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Tarshish. It's like God says go, you know, to Brownsville and you go to Canada. You know, that's kind of the idea. God says go to Victoria, you go to Tarkington. You know, this is the idea. Just go the opposite direction. This is what Jonah's doing. Now, the other thing that we know is what Tarshish means, which is important. Tarshish literally means by the sea meaning that he goes through Joppa, which is a port city, to try to go to another town that's by the sea. And why would that be important? Well, we should ask the question, what does the sea symbolize in the Bible? And there is actually an answer for this. It's not all of the time, but I would say the majority of the time, the sea in the Bible, whether it's oceans or waters or rainwaters or floods, or the Sea of Galilee or the Red Sea or the Dead Sea, the sea typically symbolizes two major things, judgment and cleansing. Judgment and cleansing is what the sea usually symbolizes. I'll give you the examples. So the Bible starts with Adam and Eve, and then it moves on to Noah, right? The story of Noah 
very obviously is about water. It's about this floodwaters. And what, what do the floodwaters symbolize? Well, they simultaneously symbolize the judgment of God on the sinful world and the cleansing of the world, right? So the judgment on all of the evil things that are happening in the world and then the cleansing of the world that the ark gets preserved through this cleansing. You move on and you get the children of Israel who cross over the Red Sea into the desert away from Egypt. And what's this symbolize? Well, for the children of Israel, it's a cleansing. Egypt, they're cleansing, he's cleansing them of Egypt and all of the practices into now where he's leading them, which is the promised land. But for Egypt, the waters represent judgment. We see this in the really tough story that the children of Israel, once they cross, what happens? All of the armies of Egypt get squandered up by the water because God allowed the waters to recede and then kind of ends them. It's a really ruthless way to die if you think about it. And then you move forward and you get the children of Israel going from the desert into the promised land. And what happens? They cross over the river Jordan. What does the river Jordan do? It recedes for them once again. And once again, what you get is that God is both judging the former generation that did not believe. So it's an act of judgment against all that the wilderness represented for Israel. And it's an act of cleansing for this new generation that's going into the promised land now to fulfill God's mandate. You get Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee in the storm and he calms the seas. He walks on the waters. What's this symbolize? It symbolizes God's authority in the person of Jesus Christ over judgment and his authority to cleanse the sinners, right? Maybe most uh, obvious is the act of baptism. You guys know this. We, we do this uh, as often as we can. We'll get people in the baptism waters. And what we say when they go down is we, that you are buried with Christ in baptism, the waters, and that you are raised to newness of life again in Christ. So there's the judgment that goes down into the watery grave, right? But what this symbolizes is that Christ took the judgment for us and he was buried. And so we're buried with him. The judgment's done now. We're no longer going to be judged on the basis of our sins because Christ took that for us. And now we're coming up, which is the cleansing into newness of life in Jesus, right? And it's the waters that symbolize this. And then finally, the book of Revelation, what do you see? There's this beast that arises out of the sea. And this beast is going to do great damage to the world. You know, the book of Revelation has a lot to do with judgment and the beast is going to be a part of this. And then the very end, though, is that the beast gets cast away. And have you ever wondered why in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it says that there's no more sea? That's what it says. In the the heavenly Jerusalem, there's no more waters. There's no more sea. It's a symbol. There's no more judgment. And there's no more need for cleansing because Christ has fully absorbed judgment and cleans us all, right? This is the idea of the seas. So why is that unique for Jonah? Well, it's this. Unbeknownst to him, Jonah is now seeking his own personal peace away from the presence of God, okay? And he's going to do so by making his home in Tarshish, the place of the sea. Or in other words, he's going to do so by living in a place that's designed to perpetuate his own judgment. So he's getting away from God in the hopes to find peace. But really what he's going to get is a lot of internal damnation, internal condemnation, internal struggle. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you and I have experienced this, right? Here's what it looks like. We know that which we ought to do. We don't do that which we ought to do because it seems like it's going to bring us more joy. The moment that we actually engage with this, it leads us to more despair and our conscience eats us up. Anybody else or is it just me? Because I'm willing for it to just be me. I'm not all that uh, concerned about reputation, but I know that's happened to me. I know the thing I ought to do. I do the other thing and then I feel terrible about it. Anybody else? And the conscience kind of eats you away. And then you work on self-justification and that works not great. And then maybe self-medication, right? It's just like, let's, let's make me not feel bad, feel good. And so we, we do that with a lot of things. It could be Chick-fil-A for me, obviously. Uh, for you, you might have better self-medicating tools, but the idea is the same. 
And Jonah's doing this, right? He thinks if he goes through Joppa into Tarshish, they could be far enough away from God where he's not going to feel this overwhelming sense of condemnation. But what we know is that the city's name itself represents judgment. It represents that Jonah's not going to be able to get away from this sense of feeling that he has not been exiled from God, but that he willingly ran from God. Now, I want you to think about this. That's really the gospel story. I don't have time to think to, to go through it with you. But Adam and Eve exiled themselves from God through disobedience before God drove them out of the garden. You get this? They willfully decided that they didn't want God as their God before God drove them out of the garden. So sometimes we miss this. The idea of judgment and God's presence is actually interwoven into the very first story that the scriptures tell us. Okay. Now, this is why Jonah's great, though, because running from God is such a relatable story, isn't it? It's such a relatable story because we've all done it. We're all going to do it. And check it out. Some of us are right now in the middle of paying the fare to get to Tarshish. It's, it's, we may not know it, but that's what's happening. And the reason that I say this is because if we don't define running from God a little better than just thinking that it has to be exactly like Jonah, we might all absolve ourselves too prematurely. So you might be saying, well, you know, I don't really get God speaking to me audibly often. You know, that hasn't happened to me. He hasn't particularly called me. Go and preach unto the sinners in Splendora. I'm just kidding. Ties from Splendora. That was my jab at him. Okay. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. And so I'm not really disobeying God openly. And here's what I would say. You have to take yourself out of that. Let's get to the elements of what running from God really is. Running from God is really simple. It's just a self-salvation technique. It's knowing who God has called you to be, who he's created and called you to be, what he has said about you and what he has commanded you to do, and then turning to your own wisdom and going the other way. That's all it is. Running from God doesn't have to be this overwhelming, I called you to do this thing, and I called you to be a barber, and now you went and you're a mechanic, you sinner. And that's not the idea. It's God, you know who God has called and created you to be, and you know what he's, what he's saved and sent you to do, and you just, on your own wisdom, go another way. Paul talked about this. It's the knowing of what we ought to do and doing the opposite. It's the knowing of what we ought not to do and doing that very thing. You guys with me on this or am I crazy? This is what running from God looks like. And we got to get it out of our head, number two, that this is a logical move. So sometimes we think that, you know, that, that sin is a logical thing. It's not. And, and hear me on this. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm not going to say that it's not explainable. It is very explainable. But it's not logical. Sin's not rational. And here's why. If we really believed that God was the author of the universe, we probably wouldn't be searching for a second opinion like he was, you know, the doctor who told you the bad news. It's God, you know? It's, the rational thought is like, God says this, we do that, because God is the author of life. All sin's irrational, but it's very explainable. And the best way that I thought to explain this was through a quote by Thomas Edison, and then I have my own, like, version of his quote that I'm going to give you, and hopefully you'll go tweet it later or something. Okay. So, Let's break this down. The decision to run from God, it begins with distrust and then it's calcified in self-trust. So it starts with, I don't really know if God is who he says he is. And then it's really calcified in our, our trust in ourselves. My ideas, my way, my direction, my thoughts are better. Beginning with distrust, calcified in self-trust. The same reason that Jonah runs is the same reason that you and I run. It's because the path that leads us away from God isn't like, don't think like path to Mount Doom in Lord of the Rings, you know. It's no, it's beautiful. The path that leads us away from God looks better than the path that leads us to God. The path of obedience looks like the rocky crag. The path to disobedience looks like the interstate highway. And that's why we go that way. Because if in our own wisdom, on our own vision, we look at disobedience and we say, that seems like it's wiser. 
How do you know this in the story of Jonah? Well, Jonah goes to Tarshish, but through a city named Joppa. Do you know what the word Joppa means? It means beautiful. So he goes to the city of judgment through the city that's beautiful. It's not like whenever Satan tempts us to disobey God that he does so by showing us all the consequences of sin. No, he shows us that which is beautiful. And then when we actually go into that city, we start realizing, oh no, it's getting dark in here. The smell's rotten. Oh, this isn't great. It's like, you know, eating ice cream at dinner and then you realize it didn't all do all that well. You know, the heartburn after the fajitas. That's what this is. Okay. So the pathway to run from God looks more beautiful than the pathway of obedience, which looks questionable. The Edison quote is this. Edison said, opportunity is often missed because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Which I always love that quote. And my rendition of that is obedience is often missed because it's dressed in humility and it looks impractical. That's why we often disobey. It's because it requires our humility to trust that God sees what we don't see. God knows what we don't know. And so when he tells us to obey, even if it seems crazy, you know, Peter, walk, on, walk out to the water to me. You obey because you trust that he sees more than you see. I want to give you biblical examples because I don't think I'm taking crazy pills. Listen, let's just start like early on. Noah, God shows up to Noah, build a boat in the Mesopotamian desert. First of all, there hadn't been boats yet, at least not in the Mesopotamian desert, because there's no need for them. Then he tells him the next line, which is, it's going to rain and flood the whole world. And here's the thing, that would be like, I mean, we're from Houston, we're like, that makes sense to us. But it hadn't rained yet. So like, they didn't even know I have a concept of rain, and they're living in the desert. It says, build a boat. Okay. Abraham, leave your house, walk in the desert, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have so many kids. It's like, okay, some of you guys, that works for y'all because you got like 30 kids and you're filling up the kids' ministry. Abraham's old, his wife, the Bible records, is older than old, and they're both infertile. So it's like, that doesn't seem reasonable. It's impractical, at least. Okay, Moses, go to Egypt. I want you to talk to Pharaoh, uh, the largest empire of the day. And I want you to say, hey, I, uh, I met God in a bush that was burning, but not consumed. He says, you got to let us all go. And here's the thing, you're going to tell him to do this on the basis of my authority. And Egypt basically is propped up by their slavery and the labor of their slaves. So basically you have to tell Pharaoh, I want you to let all of us go. I know that's going to be a a tough deal for your economy, but God said. And Moses is a stutterer. That's another piece. Okay. Joshua, you're going to go into Jericho, real fortified city, bricks everywhere. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to Walk around the city silently for six days. On the seventh day, get the marching band and everybody yell. And I'll give you the city this way. It's like, okay, that, that a little impractical. How about Gideon? Gideon is an interesting story because he's like, Gideon, I'm going to send you to defeat the Midianites. They're a massive army. Uh, Gideon has 30,000 men, so it's like he's still outnumbered by a great amount, but at least he's got a shot. God says, you have too many people in your army. We've got to trim this down. So he trims it down by 10,000, and Gideon now has 20,000 men. So he thinks, okay, this, this is not great, but we'll do it. God looks at him and says, it's still too many people. Um, he trims it down by another 99% roughly. They end up with 300 guys, and the weapons they get are like lanterns and hammers. I'm not kidding. Read the Bible. And he says, go into the night and take the lantern and and hit the lantern with your hammer and go, ah, and then it'll work. 
This is, now listen to me. We, if God told you to do that, you would think mm, that's a little impractical, right? At bare minimum, it, it requires you to remember who's talking. I mean, I think that's important. And then, of course, we get Jonah. Jonah, you know, something we don't really think about is you have to take him in the context of his day. Uh, he says, Jonah, go and preach to the city that will enslave you in roughly 40 years and tell them I'm willing to give them mercy if they'll repent. Jonah's like, mm-hmm. Like, he's not a geopolitical scholar, but maybe not. Like, maybe that's not wise. Assyria does enslave Israel in like 40 years from now, okay? And so he already knows this, these people aren't crazy about them. And God sends them anyway. Now, the reason that I use all those examples is because for you and I, this is the same reason that we don't obey, at least not initially. God says things to us like we need to be generous, and then we look at our bank accounts, and we're like, mm, I don't know if God's really seen the old Chase account recently. And he still doesn't say like, oh, well, there's an exception for you. You don't really have to be generous. Like in the Bible, the Macedonians, for instance, they like had nothing. And Paul says they were the greatest givers. Jesus looked at the widow. She had you know, the widow's mite. You know, she had like two copper coins and that was all that she had. And Jesus said she gave more than anyone else, right? And, and, but, but still, we have to understand the explainability of why you might be struggling with the idea of generosity. Or, and that's not really it. What about a... I don't know, like speaking up at work and sharing the gospel with your friend that's obviously hostile to Christianity. And it just so happens he's your boss. And God's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell him about me. And you're like, "Mm -hmm." you know, uh, Bill doesn't really seem to me to be like the open door, Jesus. Like, you know, you said you'd open doors. This one's closed, locked up, fire and moats in front of it. Like, this isn't the one I'm walking through. And yet he calls you to do so. How about repentance? It's like God calls you to repent to your wife, and you're like, I don't think that's going to work well. You know, it might start a conflict. You know, we're kind of known for that. It's not going to, my reputation with my wife might go poorly. She might not see me as respectful or respectable anymore. You know, that's, maybe I can repent to you. Me and you can talk it out. This is how obedience goes. And if we're honest, we should see ourselves here. We've experienced this, and the reason for it is because at the heart of running for God, running from God rather, is that we forget that it's God we're talking to. That's at the very heart. Like this isn't Jerry from 7-Eleven giving you directions. This is God of the universe speaking to you directly. And we forget this, so we start kind of rationalizing why it might be okay for us to trust our own plan. I get mad at my kids sometimes. I'm going to confess it. Anybody else or just me? All right, I'll move on, but And the reason I get mad at my kids is I get baffled that they never lose their confidence that they know the best course of action, even if they've never done the thing that we're about to do. Anybody else experienced this? It's like when my child tries to give me directions and then I'm like, like you still write your ends backward in your name, you know? And have you experienced, it's like, you're not going the right way. It's like, um, you need to close it or I'm going to drop you off here, you know, and you can walk. Like, And here's the thing, I think about it, and then I think, when God gives me the grace to do so, I'm reminded, like, oh, you know, I think that I see myself and my kids, like, a little bit. Like, I don't know about you, how many bad decisions have you made in your life? I have a solid list. Um, I've told you some of them. I'll give you one, one solid example, and for all of our junior hires in here, this is not an advocation. When I was in eighth grade, I, dis- I, th- I took a bet and commandeered my teacher's minivan from a Christian school 
and drove around the parking lot. And that was the end of my tenure there. Um, And I think back on that, and I'm like, you know, as outright ignorant of a decision as I may, you know what I've never done? I've never looked at that and questioned my driving skills or my decision making. I just, I trusted implicitly. Like, I'm baffled by myself because I look at my track record, and I've got a pretty long list of uh, bad decisions that, that are there. And you know what I haven't done? I have not written myself off completely. I still feel pretty good about myself. Like, I still think that most people are stupid and I'm smart. This is real. I, when I think of other people's decisions, I'm like, why are they the way that they are? I never think about that about myself. Like, I can get lost on the way to the grocery store, and I still don't question my sense of direction. You know, like, I'm so, bad, I'm so not observant that I can walk into a room and there could be celebrities everywhere, you know. It could be on fire and I would just have dinner. And yet I still don't question my sense of self-awareness. Like, I think I genuinely see myself as Jason Bourne. And... <laughs> And I don't know why it is this way. And what this does for me is it, it's, and I hope it's what it does for you. I'm, I'm convinced the number one reason we don't follow God is not because God's track record is a little shady. I think it's because we have an innate ability to church up our track record so much that we can look back at ourselves and really think like, yeah, but you know, I, I still think I know the best way. That's why we disobey God. It's not because God's not trustworthy. It's because we believe somewhere deep inside of us that we've got, we got this. We got this. It's like my son in the back seat telling me where to go. It's like me still trusting myself, even though I've given myself every reason to kind of at least give myself a smidge of skepticism, right? Like sometimes I'll hear people you know, they'll talk about you know, like questioning God's wisdom. And I've heard this a number of times. It goes something like this. If there's an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, all-worthy God, you know, God who's, who calls for my obedience and I should give it to him, then how come there's so much evil in the world, huh? Hmm? How come there's bad things in the world? Isn't he omni, you know, omnipotent and omnibenevolent? Why doesn't he just you know, fix that up? I've seen it on Harry Potter. You can do this. And I think, hmm, okay, okay, that's a good point. And then again, I think about it, and I'm like, didn't your kids, like, light your woods on fire last week under your supervision? Like, like you can't even keep goodness in your own household. Like, they're still evil. They're running around punching each other. You didn't even have to teach them to punch each other. Your kids knew that they wanted to punch each other from the moment they came out. They came out of the birth canal and punched their sister. You know, that's what happened. You didn't even teach it. They just lied implicitly. Did you eat those cookies? Mm Mm-mm. And yet we question God. Okay, and and hear me on this. There's an exercise here. I really want you to think about this. What does it say about us that we rabidly question Jesus's words, but we like implicitly trust, like, I don't know, Bill Nye the science guy. Like we just, we watch a YouTube video about like aliens and we're just like, hey, have you heard about the aliens? (laughs) I think about this sometimes. We don't trust Jesus's words. We're like, I don't know about that old judge not. You know, the resurrection. Hmm. But we watch a YouTube vid, you know, with like, I don't know, Red Pill 75, you know, username, and we're like, this guy's got the truth here. And you need to know about it. And I'm joking, but I'm I'm only half joking because here's the thing. If we were willing to have the starting line being that we questioned ourselves with at least the amount of skepticism that we bring to God, I think that we'd be much better off and far more obedient. Like, we can avoid from running away from God if we just remember who he is. 
that God has a plan for the world. He has a plan for you. Like he's been working this plan out long before you were born. And he's been doing so with meticulous accuracy. He's been doing so without any hiccups. And even though it may seem like God takes the long way around, he always accomplishes his purposes. Like he just hasn't failed on that one. Like if you, if you had a batter in baseball that batted a thousand and, and you started to question that bet, I would wonder why. And yet that's what we do with the scriptures often is we, well, you know, I know God came through for, for Abraham, but what about me? And, and listen, we think that that's about God. It's much more about us. It's much more about how we trust us than it is about how we distrust God. Don't get me wrong. It starts with distrusting God, but it really calcifies because we really believe we're snowflakes, all right? Like, we, we, we're pretty smart. And here's the thing. Here's what I'll say. God doesn't keep us completely in the dark about his plans because he knows us and he knows that we need to know that he has it under control. And he keeps us on a need-to-know basis. Listen, he doesn't tell us everything. That's why I just mentioned to you a lot of the examples where God doesn't tell Noah exactly how it's going to work out. But he does give us enough that we might trust him. God gives us glimpses of his beauty. He gives us glimpses of his trustworthiness. And this is the last thing that I wanted to mention about this text, which is kind of hidden, because you get Tarshish three times, the presence of God twice, and then there's this little name of this city named Joppa. It's mentioned one time, and it's the via point. It's the through point for Jonah to run from God. And I told you already, Joppa means beautiful. But what I didn't tell you is that Joppa, this is not the only time in your Bible that it's mentioned. There's a handful of other times, but in particular, the most famous time that Joppa is mentioned in the, is in the book of Acts, chapters 9 and 10, after the resurrection of Christ, as Jesus has sent his disciples to go and preach the gospel. And I want to tell you, just for the sake of time, I can't read it. If you want to go back and read, you can. There's two major events that happen in the city of Joppa with Peter. Peter's in the city of Joppa, and the first thing that happens is he goes to the house of a woman named Tabitha. And Tabitha is a woman that's known for her good works. And yet she's died. The people of the city come to her and or come to Peter and say, Will you come and pray for her? Can you help her? And Peter, of course, tells Tabitha, daughter, I say to you, arise. This is directly what Jesus has said before, too. And he raises this woman from the dead in Joppa. It's a beautiful miracle. He goes home and he goes to sleep because he's just a normal guy. And as he's in the hour of prayer the next morning on the rooftop, he goes into a trance. Peter has a vision from God. And in this vision, Peter sees a a sheet. It says like a sheet of animals that are flowing before his face. And all of these animals are, in the Mosaic law, ritualistically unclean. It's all the unclean animals that a Jewish man cannot eat. Now, we're all Gentiles, so we just eat whatever. You know, we eat crawfish, okay? We're, we're doing our thing. That's not common for the Jewish, Jewish man. He sees all these unclean animals coming down like a sheet. And God's word comes to him and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, never, Lord. Never will I let that which is unclean touch my lips. And you'd think that God would be saying, great job, my boy, I was testing you. Here's what he says. Never call unclean that which I have called clean. And he does it all over again. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so Peter wakes up from this dream. He doesn't know what to think about it. You know, it's kind of an odd dream. It's not very, I mean, a little bit ambiguous. Meanwhile, what unbeknownst to Peter, what's been happening behind the scenes is that God has come to an Italian man named Cornelius, a Gentile, 
And he has told him to go to Joppa to meet with Peter so that he might be saved. The first Gentile we see saved is saved because he shows up to Peter's house in Joppa. Now, you might be asking yourself, what in the world does that have to do with Jonah? Well, I think there's a direct line that we can draw. It goes something like this. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Never, Lord. I'm never going to eat anything unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. In the book of Jonah, it says, arise, Jonah, go, preach to the unclean. And Jonah says, never, Lord, the unclean don't deserve your mercy. And what does God say? Do not call unclean what I intend to make clean. You see, Jonah later on is going to tell us why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. It's because he doesn't, he's not interested in God showing them mercy. And God says, I intend to make Nineveh this great evil city. I intend to make them clean. You need to go and do what I've told you to do. Now, in the same way that Peter gets two of the visions, we're going to see here that chapter three basically starts, it's a start over of chapter one because Jonah's going to get the second vision again. Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. Peter and Jonah do the exact same things. Peter just kind of does it as he's in this trance and Jonah does it with his feet. But the idea here is that both of them trust themselves, at least initially, more than they trust God. The book of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It's this, it's this fundamental truth that God has a plan that he wants to make dead people alive. He wants to make unclean people clean. He wants to take unworthy people and make them worthy. He wants to take sinners and make them saints. He wants to take the unlikely person and make them into his called out one. He wants to take the one that's in your family that you just don't even like talking about and you mostly don't invite them to birthday parties because they might do weird things and he wants to make that person his son. God has a plan for the world and it looks opposite of what your plan is even for your own life. And so the starting line of what it means to be a Christian is that you trust God. I heard one pastor say it like this, that there's really one message in two words that's kind of woven throughout the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation and it's God saying, trust me, trust me from the jump. And so how do we trust God? And the answer is, in closing, because he proves to us his trustworthiness, and in particular, in the person of Christ. So how is what's happening here with Jonah teaching us about Jesus? Well, in the same way that Jonah was called to go to the city of Nineveh, the broken and fallen city, and preach God's mercy, Jesus is called to enter into human history in this great time of tumult, but he doesn't just come to one city. He's coming into a world full of sin. Jonah is sent to a city of sin. Jesus is sent to a world full of sin. And he doesn't come just bringing a message of warning. He comes bringing a message of good news and not just bringing that message, but he is the message embodied. He does what it takes for that message to be true. From start to finish, Jesus does what Jonah can't do. Jonah disobeys and runs from God's presence. Jesus is the embodiment of God's presence, the tabernacle of God among us. And if you're around Jesus, you're in the presence of God. In verse 3, Jonah tries to pay the price for the fare to get on a ship and cross over the sea to go to a place of his own personalized peace that he created for himself, cleansing himself from his conscience. Little does he know that none of that's going to work, right? Jesus, on the other hand, in the gospel, he pays the price for our judgment to cross the sea of judgment, and he stands in our stead. Jesus allows the judgment of God to fall on his shoulders, crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote from Psalm 22 saying that what you and I deserved in judgment, Christ took on himself. 
And then he gives us the greatest gift in the process. He says, you think that you have to cross the sea in order for you to get to this city of peace. And it's really just your place of judgment. And Jesus says, I've already paid the price for your judgment. You don't have to run from God. Now I'll place my spirit within you and the very presence of God will abide in you. And how do you get this gift? It's simply through faith. And so I want to leave you with three questions. And these three questions, I hope they help because here's the thing. I think we can all see that we find ourselves in Jonah's shoes a lot. And the questions are this. What are you trying to take into your own hands in your life? How are you trying to gain peace, like supernatural peace, through your own plans, like your own way? And then lastly, how are you trying to shape your own purpose because you think it's going to go well if you do this thing? The, the best part of these, or of these three questions is that I don't even have to know you to know that they're helpful. I don't even have to know you to know that there's an examination that takes place. This often happens whenever you hear the word of God is that immediately we all kind of intrinsically know where we're stiff-arming him, right? And... I want you to hear not the judgment or condemnation that the enemy wants to bring. I want you to hear the invitation of Christ that we see here, which is this. Jesus had this famous moment when he spoke to his disciples and all those who would hear him. And he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So come to me. Now, there's an implicit understanding here is that you and I, we like to burden ourselves by thinking that we could do it better. We like to think that we have the better plan for our life. We like self-salvation techniques. We like the idea of cleansing our own conscience. We like the idea because we think that we're going to do it better. But what that does is it just crushes us because you can't be the Messiah for yourself. And then Jesus shows up and says, why don't you lay all that down and come to me? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I will free you from these self-salvation techniques. And so I pray you hear the invitation of Christ this morning. And if you find yourself kind of bucking back against that, I want you to, you don't have to do it comedically, but lovingly remind yourself that of all the times that you failed you, and then remind yourself, but what about Jesus? If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Ah, oh, Father, I'm, I'm just, I want to confess in front of my friends, in front of those that are under the sound of my voice that may not even know me. I, Lord, forgive me how often I run away and stiff arm you. Help me, God, to unburden myself and accept that which you have purchased for me. And I pray that for all of us. Holy Spirit, would you now call us to Jesus' side, to his feet, like the woman with the alabaster ointment, and just be willing to take the preciousness of all of our plans and just break them right there at his feet. So that we can finally embrace the fact that you know better, you see more, you understand us more deeply, you love us more unconditionally than any person or thing. God, help us to trust you in that. And I pray, my God, that there be a great amount of freedom as we take of your table and as we sing of your praise Help us to have the freedom to not run from your presence, but to dwell in the fact that, Jesus, you're with us, even always to the end of the age. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.